the reading from uh, Scripture today, a little bit different than what's printed in the bulletin, will begin at Matthew 27, verse 45. This is a scene from Jesus' death um, in the Gospel of Matthew. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three o'clock in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear God, as we come into this season and this most holiest of weeks, May the words we say from this pulpit, may the words we sing from these pews and from this chancel, may the sighs and vocalizations of our prayers lifted to you, give you glory, find their place in your ears and your hearts, and be returned to us as a source of strength and hope. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So as we move from the cries of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord that greeted the triumphal return of Jesus to Jerusalem on Palm Sundays, a mere five days later on Good Friday, we encounter another series of memorable words called the seven last words of Christ. If you worship with us this week, you will hear these words scattered throughout our music and services. Leading up to our proclamation at this time next week, Christ the Lord is risen today. The seven last words are spread throughout the four Gospels. Six of the seven exhibit, for the most part, Christ's sheer strength of character, of faith, of determination on the cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son. Behold thy mother. I thirst. It is finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Only one of the last seven words appear in more than one gospel. So dramatic is it that when it appears in Matthew and Mark, it is quoted in the original Aramaic in which Jesus spoke it from the cross, dying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. And it is immediately translated for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For centuries, theologians have labeled this last word the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? 
God, why? My God, why? The older we get, the greater the likelihood that we have experienced some great suffering or setback that has brought us close to uttering something like these words ourselves. My God, why? Presbyterians in Nashville are simply the latest to utter them this week of violent death and this weekend of funerals for children and their educators. My God, why? As you might imagine, the same theologians and preachers who label the cry of dereliction cannot seem from keeping themselves from seeking to soften its implications, sometimes appearing even to deny the meaning of these words as Christ was plainly speaking them. Some argue that in his physical pain and suffering, Jesus merely perceives that God has abandoned him on the cross. Most of us know that when we are emotionally distraught or physically ill, we do feel more desperate than we often are, more alone, more threatened. At such times, we, strayed, we strain to see a trace of God's hand, a touch of God's spirit, a sign of God's presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Others point out that in Jesus' time, reciting the opening line of a psalm was sometimes a way of pointing to the entire psalm itself. Much as we might sing the first line of a familiar song and then play the words over and over in our head for a day or two. In this interpretation of the cry of dereliction, Jesus is saying the first line of Psalm 22, My God, why have you forsaken me? As a way of reminding himself of lines that follow and can give him strength in his hour of need. Such as lines 9 to 11 of the psalm. Yet it was you who took me from my mother's womb. You kept me safe at my mother's breast. Since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one else to help. I may have shared with you before that one of the ministers in the Deep South who shaped me in my youth worked so hard and cared so deeply that he had several heart attacks between his early 40s and his late 50s. One of these landed him in an, in an emergency room. The decision was made for immediate surgery. From his gurney, the minister turned to a longtime friend and fellow pastor who was present there in the ER with his wife, with the minister's wife. The minister on the gurney said, I want to confess my faith. And he raised his hand and he clasped the hands of the other two. And the three of them together began saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. The last words this minister wanted to say for strength and courage before being put to sleep for surgery were words he had said every Sunday in worship for years. 
He was saying them liturgically, not theologically. He was saying them for the comfort and strength they provide, not for the theological precision and clarity they were written to achieve centuries earlier. I believe in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of the sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And he survived that surgery to lead congregations in saying these words for several more decades. He had a couple of more heart attacks. He served for several more years. He lived to be his early 90s. So say the Apostles' Creed before you go into surgery. As appealing as the possibility is that Jesus is pointing to other words in the psalm for strength and comfort. This interpretation runs the risk of avoiding the full implication of the title by which this last word goes, the cry of dereliction. I am more persuaded by those theologians and writers who argue that in his death, by one of the cruelest means of execution and torture known to humanity, Jesus Christ as God, was utterly alone in a way that holds two truths in our minds at the same time, something we are not ordinarily want to do. In his death on the cross, though Christ himself was God, he was without God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his utter aloneness, Jesus fully identifies, has empathy with our compromised, absurd human condition. The condition that we call sin. The condition that gives rise to events like Nashville and millions of other similar acts of cruelty and senselessness day in and day out all over our dearly created but horribly fallen world. In his death by crucifixion, Jesus completely enters the desperation of our human condition He completely experiences the suffering and heartache and coldness and violence and godlessness of the world. He does not just see it or feel it or analyze it or observe it from a distance or experience it momentarily or treat it or rescue it. Wave a magic wand to make it all go away. Rather, in his death on the cross, Christ completely enters the darkness of our darkness days, the coldness of our coldest hours, the silence of our most unanswered prayers and unpleasantness and aloneness. In his death and resurrection, Jesus takes these upon himself. He absorbs them into his very being. He bears their emotional toll in his soul and their physical scars 
in his body. He cries the cries our tear ducts have long grown too dry to cry. And Christ does not do this simply as a human being suffering great pain on our behalf. He doesn't do this simply as a martyr willing to give his life to save us. He doesn't do this as a sacrifice offering himself to appease the wrath of an angry God or to satisfy God's sense and definition of justice. All these are part or images that seek to grasp what it is he does. But rather Jesus suffers the crucifixion as God. He enters this supreme act of suffering as an irreducible part of the Trinity. His entering into our God forsakenness is a joint project of Father, Son, and Spirit. In a way that is beyond our understanding, as most matters Trinitarian are, each person of the Trinity suffers in the death of Christ. Thus, as we stand beneath the cross, opposite but equal truths concerning the crucifixion enter our hearts and minds. God is present. God is absent. God is weak. God is strong. God is separated from God's self. God is united with God's self. In God's God forsakenness. God has not been forsaken. Nor has God forsaken us. In the cross of Christ, my friends, we have presence in absence. And we have absence in presence. Even though asserting that present and absence can coexist at the cross even as this disrupts our logical way of thinking. To me, this is the best way to believe in God in the midst of a world whose fallenness and evil we experience far more than we desire and sometimes more than we feel we can tolerate. The image that has in recent years come to best help me understand this cry of dereliction is one I mentioned earlier. It is the image of absorption. God enters the condition of human godlessness in our world and even in our individual lives to absorb the power of sin and evil that have pushed God aside or made God barely perceptible to us. God defeats these two powers by taking them into God's very heart and soul and mind and body and being by absorbing them. This absorption provides something of a shield for us and I believe serves as a basis for us to join God in resisting these powers of sin and death when they rear their heads nearby in places where we can actually do something large or small to hold them at bay, to oppose them, and at times to join God in their defeat. This action of absorption of the powers of sin and death does not represent a change in God 
but rather reflects the truest identity of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. It is to this truest character of God that we can commit ourselves to responsible action in the world in which God has placed us. This past month, I've read several profound articles about the ongoing struggle in our nation and around the world to find a more moral, humane, civilized footing to become community again, human community, to become a people, to recover or find a politics that works as much as politics ever does, to shield ourselves as much as possible from the powers of sin and death. I've been struck by the closing paragraphs of one article I read by a longtime Washington writer, critic, philosopher, Leon Wieseltier, a person to whose writings and wisdom I have turned for over 40 years. The particular article I read is entitled Problems and Struggles. He argues that most of what is worthwhile for any society consists of long struggles that require persistence and patience rather than problems that have quick and easy solutions. If we prefer to see ourselves as a nation of problem solvers, he writes, it may be in part because we, refer, we prefer to look away at the strugglers in our midst. Having completed their tasks, problem solvers proceed to that most typical American activity of all, they move on. But strugglers, strugglers cannot move on. He then pays tribute to the community in America that has both struggled the most and stuck with the struggle. No Americans have a more natural understanding of struggle, he says, than black Americans. Their emancipation, which we tend to treat as a discrete historical event around 1863, was in the words of one historian, the long emancipation. The story of African American culture, he continues, is a story of melancholy and its mastery. There is joy in the blues, he writes, which is not the case with many other traditions of songs of sadness. The slave songs and the spirituals are intimate with the trouble of the world, but I have never heard one of them recommend surrender. O me no weary yet, O me no weary yet. I have a witness in my heart, O me no weary yet. Lord, make me more patient. Hold out to the end. And in the words of poet Sterling Hayden, Guess we'll give it one more try. Guess we'll give it one more try. In the defeat and victory through which we walk this holy week, 
in God being absent and God being present to which we bear witness this week in the move from problem solving to struggle. Do you think, do you think, do you think, do you think we can join together and say, Lord, make me more patient. Hold out until the end. Guess we'll have to give it one more try. One more try. Amen.